I'm Elena Biberman. And I'm Zach Troynovsky. Welcome to episode two of How to Kill a Superpower, Lessons from USSR. In this episode, we meet our heroes. We look at how history made them and how they made history. Well, so let's start with the man that former U.S. President Bill Clinton once described as, quote, an Irish poet. Uh, okay, so what does it mean to be an Irish poet? Like, I was trying to figure that out. I actually texted my friend, who is an expert on Irish poetry, and I was like, okay, so what does it mean? Like, if somebody calls you an Irish poet, she said, well, she texted back, oh, uh, I don't know, just like if you're a poet who happens to be Irish. Um, and then, so she had no idea, and then I was like, well, could it be, like, you're someone who likes to drink? And then she texted back, oh, yeah, that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, I think we, we, we were uh, overanalyzing it a bit for a sec. I mean, you know, there's maybe the implication that you drink a little bit too much, but that you're also creative and, you know, you get work done and then you do the work that you do pretty well. Um, but Clinton was, of course, referring to Boris Yeltsin. He had also previously described him as an artist who, quote, sees politics as a novel he's writing or a symphony that he's composing. That's very poetic of him. <laughs> um, so Yeltsin was born into a family of farmers in a small village in the Ural Mountains. Um, then he went to a Polytechnic Institute, and then he went into the Communist Party and really quickly advanced through the ranks. One thing I wonder about is why did he join the Communist Party in the first place? What do you think? Well, he's contradicted himself uh, on this question a few times in the past. There have been moments where he says that it's because he had a genuine belief in the party's values, but at other times he says that it's because uh, he was looking to use the party for career advancement. Hmm. Maybe it was both. Um, I mean, it's interesting how it's hard sometimes to know why we do what we do, or at least to remember why we do what we do. Sometimes it's hard to look back and, and kind of and, and explain it. I remember with my grandfather, who was in the Communist Party, I asked him multiple times, why did he join? What did he get out of it? The only thing he really kind of told me was, well, he's Jewish, and it was a way to protect himself, you know, to make sure that he had a good life and his family had a good life. And it was true. Um, with all the challenges, you know, we had some perks. Like, my favorite was during the May 1st parades. Um, he would take me to the front line of the parade. I would hold a placard or balloon, and he would just carry me. And it was just, it was very nice, um, this, this memory. So anyone who wanted to have a good career in uh, USSR to make it big there had to join the party. And Yeltsin did make it big. I mean, in 1990, at the tender age of 59, mm -hmm. He was elected president of the Russian parliament, which was a very powerful position. Yeah, tender age of 59, that's so true these days in politics in the United States, right? You look around, there's a lot of, those who are in the most powerful positions are just quite, um, you know, uh, elderly. <laughs> I almost describe it in the 70s, 80s. It's pretty common, which is so interesting. Honestly, kind of does remind me of the Soviet Union as well, right? The sort of, uh, what's the term, gerontocracy? Um, the rule of individuals who are kind of more of an, uh, from uh, the older generation. Um, so you look at President Biden, you see Nancy Pelosi, and you know some other presidential candidates we had, senators. You know we we do see, also see that pattern. So yeah, fifty nine. That's pretty young in politics, right? Yeah, and um, you know this is just a, another story that just I just <laughs> remembered about. Um, I'm not sure how much relevance it has, but I do remember a long time ago watching a clip uh, of the. Reagan at, uh, in a debate for when he was uh, running for re-election, and he was asked the question because there was a lot of public, you know, worry about him being too old for mm. office, which nowadays <laughs> the age would, you know, not really fly. Um, he was asked, how do you believe age factors into this, you know, political race? And he responded, 
I know my opponent is young and inexperienced, but that doesn't mean, you know, he's not a <laughs> valid candidate. Um, so not to give, you know, too much credit, credit to Reagan right here, but Brilliant. I, that was always a funny response. Yeah, like the best responses have humor in politics, I think. It just erases any logic, doesn't matter anymore. People forget what they asked in the first place, right? And I think Yeltsin kind of had that personality where he would take a question, just take it somewhere where it was just fun. And you didn't care anymore, like, what you asked him, you know, what the answer was even. Just just enjoying him. Yeah, Gorbachev wasn't like that, I remember. Um, and sort of the way that my family and people around me perceived him, sort of a typical politician who just said what, you know, he assumed people wanted to hear. He talked for a long time, was very verbose, and, quote, you know, said really nothing, according to people around me. So... So nowadays, Gorbachev is famous uh, for two things, for glasnost, that is government transparency, and perestroika, which is the economic and political restructuring away from central planning. He was very outspoken about the problems facing Soviet society and believed that it was necessary, to some extent, to break from the, with the past. He recognized that part of the problem was that the ruling elite was, to quote historian David Marples, distance from the general population other than on national holidays and ceremonies. But Yeltsin didn't see all of this as enough. He publicly criticized Gorbachev many times, and then suddenly he resigned from the Communist Party. Yeah, almost suddenly he tried resigning before, but then Gorbachev talked him out of it. It was just, it looked really bad for the entire political establishment. But yeah, Yeltsin is obviously somebody who is capable of making really big moves and taking big risks. Right? He grabbed life by, by, the, by the horns. He was also extremely popular among ordinary Russians. There was an opinion poll conducted by a Moscow newspaper in 1990, and it found that he was popular among 84% of Russian people. It's a like really high number. It made him the most trusted politician in the entire Soviet Union. And there's obviously no way he was not going to take advantage of that. I mean, he was an extraordinary man. You know, most people <laughs> try to avoid conflict or crisis. Yeltsin leaned into it. He thrived in it. Economist Anders Osland once described Yeltsin as, quote, a man who could take any crisis but could not stand ordinary times. Yeah, the image of Yeltsin standing defiantly on a tank after communist hardliners tried to take back the Soviet Union in August 1991 is iconic. I remember seeing the tanks on television and being really freaked out. I went to the bathroom, locked myself in, and then like tried to figure out what to do. Are we going to have a war? Will it be a civil war? World war? I remember sort of images of World War II, all the movies I watched as a child, sort of, and just did not want that to repeat. Um, and so, again, kind of helpless, uh, I decided, hey, why not try praying to God, which is kind of a radical, crazy idea for me at the time because I had no idea what that meant. I grew up in, this, in an atheist society. Um, like, religion was something that was like considered really outdated, like, 
to me it was like mothballs, you know, <laughs> like something really old women did because they were just, you know, they didn't know any better. And like suddenly there I was like on my knees and like trying to figure out like what does it mean to pray? I remember I must have somewhere seen like people kind of crossing their chest, making sort of a, a sign. And I'm like, okay, I'll try that. And I, I was desperate. Um, but I'll never forget that moment, how I just, you know, that, that seemed to me as the only answer. But then the coup failed, they, this attempt failed, and Yeltsin emerged as a hero and as a face of democracy. Yeltsin's rise to power, including this sort of ending to the August coup with him standing on top of the tank, uh, you know, a lot of it was tied to who he was as a person. When I spoke with Yeltsin's biographer, Timothy Colton, about some of the decisions Yeltsin made at the time, Colton told me that once Yeltsin had decided to do something, he would set about doing it immediately. He was an extremely driven man. So let's turn now you know, to a little bit of a discussion and an examination of the other members of our Troika. Ukrainian leader Leonid Kravchuk and his Belarusian counterpart Stanislav Shushchevich. Hmm, yeah, let's talk about them. So like Yeltsin, Kravchuk was born to a peasant family in a small village. He rose through the ranks of Communist Party through Agitprop, which is, was the propaganda department. So it's safe to assume he knew what he was doing when it came to influencing and manipulating people. I guess. He's an interesting character. He once described himself as, quote, a man who refuses to take an umbrella because he hopes to slip between the raindrops. This quote has always been very fascinating to me uh, mm. for two reasons. The first being that he described himself in this way, mm. which I think <laughs> is one of the most absurd ways I've ever heard someone <laughs> describe themselves. <laughs> but also because I don't quite understand what it means. Mm. And the more I try to dissect it, the more I realize it can really mean anything to anyone. And funnily enough, Kravchuk was once described in a very similar way as a man who, during the Ukrainian election cycle, right before, or alongside the referendum, meant most things to most people. Hmm. He was a career politician who was very good at painting an image that was just vague enough, but just passionate enough to enthrall uh, citizens and, hmm. and voters. Well, that's a useful skill. I guess that's kind of different from Yeltsin, who, who always talks about himself as emotional, like somebody who just can't help himself, whatever he's doing. Stanislav Shushkevich was different. He was not a career politician. He had a doctorate in physics and mathematics and authored textbooks. So he obviously would not have, you know, be the one to misjudge the velocity of raindrops, so to speak, whatever that means. <laughs> so I remember when you first approached me about this project, all you mentioned, you hadn't told me the topic. You wanted to keep it a secret mm, for a bit. I remember that. <laughs> but you had told me that for the project, you had interviewed Shushchevich. Um, and so I was very curious. I started doing some research on Shushchevich. And the first thing that came up was, you know, the, the fact that in the 60s, he had taught Lee Harvey Oswald Russian. Jesus, yeah. And so I, I knew that this was some sort of big secret of a project. So for, for a couple mm. weeks there, I was pretty sure that we were about to look into the assassination of Kennedy mm. and that this was going to be a, <laughs> you know, a pretty important uh, podcast. Not that, it, you know, it, obviously we're talking about an important topic, but I was like panicked for a second. I was like, is this why it's a secret? <laughs> um, but yeah, so in the 60s, Shushchevich was working at a radio design factory in Minsk and his boss at the time approached him and asked him to teach Russian to Lee Harvey Oswald, the man who assassinated John F. Kennedy. Um, Allegedly. Allegedly. <laughs> but in an interview, Shashevich described Oswald as, quote, a very careful person who did not blend into Soviet society very well at all because he would always be in very good shape, always all in its place. Shashevich wasn't allowed to ask about Oswald's personal life, and so he didn't learn much about it. But here's something really interesting. To this day, he doesn't believe that Oswald killed Kennedy. 
as he put it in an interview, I don't believe that he shot anybody. I cannot believe that it was this person with whom I had these short and private lessons. Yeah, so when I interviewed and talked to Stanislav Shushkevich, it obviously was one of the most surreal moments in my life because he was president of the country which my family and I fled as refugees. And there I was on my cell phone talking to him on his cell phone, he referring to me as we, which is plural you, you know, as an adult. Even though, like, when I was in Belarus, I was a child, so I couldn't have this mentality, you know, being referred to as tu, which is singular. And there he was, you know, taking me seriously and talking to me and being really nice. Um, so I just, that was, that was a really interesting moment. And, uh, um, but then another interesting moment came after I hung up. So that was the one morning, I called him in the morning, where I decided not to check the news. The news just has not been very good lately, and I decided to have a mental break from it you know, make the phone call and then see what's happening in the world. Well, what was happening in the world was that Belarus was having the biggest protests like in the country's history, maybe, <laughs> I don't know, since since the independence. Um, and Shushkevich was like in the middle of all of that. So I was really holding him up on the phone, like trying to ask him to relive um, the what happened in 1991, while another major historical situation was unfolding in front of him. And he was just like, okay, well, just again, being really nice about it. I was so embarrassed later. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but it's kind of crazy to imagine Shushkevich and Oswald sitting together, conjugating verbs. You know, Russian is a really difficult language. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine how shocked Shushkevich must have been when he heard that his former student was accused of killing Kennedy? Yeah, that must have been shocking. But, like, imagine Oswald. Like, if somebody told him that his teacher would one day dissolve the Soviet Union, that would be shocking as well. Yeah, you know, I, sometimes, you know, after hearing a story, I, I wish that I could have been in the room to see how these lessons played out between these two, you know, massively important historical figures. But then I remember all of the Russian <laughs> lessons that I've had throughout my lifetime, and I realized that the majority of it would probably be just tedious grammar. <laughs> so what, what has it been like for you to learn Russian? Learning Russian? Well, I, you know, I've tried a few times. I, it was actually my first language um, that I learned before English. And huh. then I blame my brother, actually, for the fact that I've forgotten it, uh, because he maintained most of his Russian after he went to preschool, because it was the language he spoke at home. But by the time I went to preschool, my brother was coming home from school and speaking mm. English to me. Uh, so he's maintained it much better than I have. Um, but I tried again towards the end of elementary school, uh, and I just couldn't, couldn't deal with the, the lessons. They were incredibly tedious and, and boring to me. Did you take classes, or were your parents? Too? I had a, a tutor, mm. um, but it, it didn't work out. And then my Russian learning from for a couple of years was basically hinged on whenever my grandparents would come to visit, they would insist on teaching me a few words, <laughs> which is great. You know, I got to learn a little bit, but it, it never really stuck. Uh, actually, until I came here to Stinmore, and I took a year and a half of Russian here, and I'm not going to say it all stuck, but now I can pretty confidently read Cyrillic, uh, which is a skill I haven't had since I was maybe six years old. Mm. So, it, you know, it's, it's small victory. Let's go back to the three heroes. So how did Yeltsin, Kravchuk, and Shushkevich end up dissolving the Soviet Union? How is it that they found themselves in this hunting lodge, not killing a single wild animal, but ending the life of a country? Well, I mean, not just any country, one of the world's and, and history's two most powerful countries.
country in which they built their illustrious careers from humble beginnings, a country that was meant to empower the powerless like them to make those who had been, quote, nothing into, quote, everything. In the last of his trilogy of memoirs, Yeltsin wrote, quote, much of what occurred depended on my actions, right or wrong. But in the end, history is not written by individuals. There are general and sometimes cryptic patterns in the lives of nations. Yeah, this reminds me of Karl Marx's famous observation, quote, men make their own history, but they do not make it as they please. They do not make it under self-selected circumstances, but under circumstances existing already, given and transmitted from the past. Well, so this raises the question, did Yeltsin, Kravchuk, and Shushchevich decide to come to Belovizhia, or were they brought there by forces more powerful than them outside their knowledge and control? Yeah, so we mentioned Russian grammar before. So passive voice is something that you know Russian language is kind of famous for. It's you know it's how we talk about generally uh, about things that have happened without identifying who or what caused them to happen. It's common in many languages. In English, there's only one way to structure this kind of sentence. Like for example, Bob was driven to the concert. So we don't know who drove him, but we presume someone, obviously, someone who was like probably really nice. and But in Russian, there are multiple complicated ways to make passive voice sentences. And I think this reflects sort of this recognition that things are sometimes outside of our control. They happen to us um, and they make us do what we otherwise would not do. Like, you know, pay taxes or maybe even commit a crime. So this is one of the big themes in Fyodor Dostoevsky's book, Crime and Punishment. His main character was a student who had a lot of potential, but not enough money to sustain himself. So did he really have a choice, right? Well, I don't want to spoil the book, though. But, you know, this is a classic problem. I, I, I do remember learning about it in your intro class. It's called the structure agency problem. Mm -hmm, yep. So this problem is fundamental in how we understand the world and ourselves. It's timeless and obviously universal. So let me show you another one of my favorites. Um, it's from another famous Russian novel. In War and Peace, Leo Tolstoy explores the question of why Napoleon invaded Russia in 1812. So obviously that was a big mistake. In hindsight, it kind of seems like a ridiculous thing to have done. But remember, Tolstoy was not just a writer. He was also an officer was with experience fighting the Crimean War. And he was really appalled by what he witnessed, right? He saw that war was hell. Still, he argues that Napoleon, quote, could not help himself. And neither could anyone else who participated in those events. Quote, he says, of all the countless people who participated in this war, you know, they acted all in just the same way as a result of their personal qualities, habits, conditions, and aims. They feared, boasted, rejoiced, resented, reasoned, supposing that they knew what they were doing and they were doing it for themselves. And yet they were all involuntary instruments of history and performed work hidden from them but comprehensible to us. End of quote. And but here's this part uh, which I find the most striking. Quote, such is the inevitable fate of all men of action. And the higher they stand in the human hierarchy, the less free they are. So Tolstoy would say that Yeltsin, Kravchuk, and Shushchevich weren't acting freely. He would say that they thought they were, but they weren't. Or maybe because they read Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, they knew how little power they actually had over their fate. You know, history was going to happen, whether they liked it or not. Yeah, the structure made them do it, right, as I tell my students. Well, maybe that's too deterministic, though. Um, so let's try to figure it out. Let's dissect the whole thing, right? Did they make history or did history make them? What were the historical or structural factors that brought them to Bilavieja? Well, you know, 
like any structure structure agency problem conversation, it depends how far you want to go back. Mm -hmm. So you can go as far back as the Big Bang. That certainly made everything possible. Mm -hmm. um, but there's also this old Russian joke dating back to 1825 that a bald leader will always be succeeded by one with hair and vice versa. So Gorbachev was famously bald, so you can say that it was inevitable that Yeltsin, <laughs> a man with a full head of hair, would succeed him. Well, you got it. We're done. <laughs> that's, Thank that's you, everyone. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, it's, that's a good one. Um, but okay, so let's look at the more proximate factors that might have caused uh, Bilaveja to happen. Я хотел решить частный вопрос, маленький, очень маленький, и для этого пригласил президента Ельцина в Беловежскую пущу. Пригласил на охоту, потому что он охотник, он любил охоту. Я говорю, приезжайте к нам, вы увидите, как это хорошо. Here Shushkevich is saying that he invited Yeltsin to Беловежа because he had just a small question for him. Shushkevich's mind, winter was coming, and as Napoleon learned firsthand, it can be brutal. Belarus needed Russia to supply oil and gas so that millions of people wouldn't freeze. Shushkevich always recalls organizing the meeting with a very specific and limited goal in mind, quote, to help our government save the people from the very cold winter that was coming. And he also wanted the oil and gas for free, or as he put it, in the old Soviet style. So had it not been for this, you know, coming winter in Belarus desperately needing Russia's energy, he would not have organized the meeting in the first place. The three leaders would not have met at the Viscoli Hunting Lodge on December 8th, 1991, and they would not have dissolved the Soviet Union, right? Okay, so what about Kravchuk? What brought him to Bilavieja? Kravchuk is saying here that, you know, sometimes big events happen and they can be quite unpredictable. All right, so six days before the meeting at Belavieja, there's an election in Ukraine. Kravchuk is elected president and a referendum shows that 90% of Ukrainians expressed support for Ukraine declaring independence from the USSR. Wow. So Ukrainian nationalism was really strong at the time, and it played a big role in this outcome. Yeah, interestingly, this was not the case for Belarus. Most people were not mobilized by this sort of feeling of national Belarusian identity. It was mostly inflation and empty shelves, which I remember very clearly. Um, everything was expensive, but it was also not available. Um, I remember those days, like, Everything, you know, the bread at least was cheap and plenty, so that was accessible. Everything else, butter, salt, toilet paper, like you had to stand in line for, for hours, if you were lucky enough to even find the line. So there's a Soviet joke that captures this mood. A man standing in line says, I had enough, save my place, I'm going to shoot Gorbachev. Two hours later, he returns. Did you get him, a woman asks? No, that line was even longer than this one. Growing up, my parents would always try to tell me about, you know, this situation with lawn lines and empty shelves and try to, try to explain what it was like. Um, and recently, while they were telling a story about it, my grandfather interrupted them and said, you know, don't bother. You couldn't possibly explain something like that to someone who lives here. And I, you know, I understand that. I, I think it makes a lot of sense. I do think I got a small peek at, you know, what it might be like uh, this past, not this past spring, two springs ago, uh, in the wake of the first COVID lockdown when, you know, for 50 miles around the place I was staying, there was no toilet paper available. In fact, uh, the people that I was living with, we found a Chinese distribution website that was selling a Polish brand of toilet paper, and we ordered it, came six months later. <laughs> when 
so when toilet paper became scarce because of the pandemic and the conditions, uh, people kind of asked me like, oh, this, you know, this might be really scary for you because you already lived through it, right? And actually it wasn't. I feel like I've always been ready for it. Like I just, I just knew this was going to happen to me again because I've, I've seen it before and I knew it was going to happen again and that was ready. So, you know, I was stocked up, like bought industrial size toilet paper from Amazon. So back to Gorbachev and, you know, the joke I told about the man who yeah, well, just... It sounds like he was, you know, quite unpopular at the mm -hmm. time. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the entire system was unpopular. Um, and that's definitely another big structural factor that influenced Yeltsin quite directly. Yeah, and so the event that sort of best exemplified this was the August coup that you mentioned earlier. In fact, Shushchevich often says that this August coup was what caused the Soviet Union to fall apart. You know, the beginning of the end, if you will. Yeah, it may have been falling apart, but it was still standing. Yeah, and you know, this made Yeltsin extraordinarily popular and powerful, and also full of ideas about where Russia should be heading economically and politically. In fact, when I talked to Yeltsin's biographer, Timothy Tolton, about this, he mentioned that at the time, Yeltsin would have been most easily mobilized on, on economic issues. He was trying to craft economic policy where Russia was the primary unit rather than the Soviet Union. Hmm. But standing between him and this vision was Gorbachev and the Soviet state. Yeah, but Gorbachev, just like one of Tolstoy's, quote, involuntary instruments of history, um, in that, you know, he called the summit where Shushkevich and Yeltsin met and, and talked about, you know, a meeting in Bilavieja. Can you tell that story? Yeah, this oh, it's a great one. Gorbachev was, was dead and desperate. You know, Baltic states had already declared independence. There was this upcoming Ukrainian referendum, and it seemed as if the majority of the union was pretty displeased with the state of things. Uh, so he calls this meeting at the state council building with a bunch of Soviet leaders so that he can present his revised union treaty. The leaders all gather, they all sit down at the table, you know, he walks into the room, he presents this treaty, and it's dismissed outright. I, I don't think very few of the leaders in the room, you know, were for it. And Gorbachev was surprised by this. I think he had expected it to be more of a conversation, a, you know, an actual process. Uh, he didn't expect to be dismissed so outright. So he got very angry, and he stormed out of the room. The leader sat there for a while, kind of unsure as to what to do when the person who called you all to the state council storms <laughs> out of the room. Uh, but eventually they decided we should go find him so that we can continue this meeting and you know, go home. Uh, so they split into pairs, and they searched the you know, large hallways of the state council building for, for Gorbachev. And it just so happens that Yeltsin and Shushchevich were paired together and while they were searching the building for Gorbachev, Shushchevich extended this invite to Yeltsin to meet him in Belavezhia to discuss you know, oil and gas trade agreements. Wow, wow. So again, another big structural factor, right, that without this experience, without Gorbachev you know, arranging for this meeting, and then kind of coincidentally, Shushkevich and Yeltsin being paired up together allowed them to talk to each other, set up this meeting. Though I, I do have to say, you know, as we discuss this and we bring in this narrative of history driving them to this moment, I wonder if us saying that powerful people have little choice in their actions because of the historical forces you know, weighing down them in a way that doesn't necessarily happen to ordinary people, aren't we you know, stripping them of any responsibility? Aren't we letting powerful people off the hook a little bit too much? Yeah, that's a really good point. I mean, ultimately, the decision to dissolve the Soviet Union belonged to them. Right. And also just the decision to even join politics, to hold public office, to have power. That was their personal decision. Uh, they decided to have the kind of job where what they decide affected millions of people. 
billions if you count the rest of the world and future generations. You know, I, I've often struggled to come up with a satisfying answer as to why Shostakovich was the first to stand and agree with the proposal to dissolve the USSR. You know, while his friendship and respect for Yeltsin could serve as motivation, even Yeltsin himself wasn't as quick. I feel like in most analyses of 20th century political conflicts, and I, you know, even modern day political conflicts, we as researchers often find ourselves picking apart the ways in which politicians and individuals weaponize ideology in these you know, political games and power struggles. And in another interview, when prompted about what ran through his head the night the men at Belovezhia agreed to dissolve the USSR, Shostakovich recalled the Soviet myth that Lenin, in response to the question, why are you rioting when you are facing a wall, allegedly said, it is a wall, but a rotten one. One single jab, and it will collapse. So when I think of the moment that Shostakovich stood to agree with the proposal to dissolve the USSR, I find very few plausible explanations, aside from the notion that he genuinely believed it was the right thing to do. Hmm. I guess sometimes that happens too. <laughs> I cannot help but be reminded of Raskolnikov, the student from Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. He did something he could never take back. He thought, at least for that moment, that his actions would make the world a better, more fair place. Maybe he was not a bad person or a good person. He's just like a human being, right? But even he ultimately came to recognize that despite any potential justifications, he had to be held accountable for his actions. He wanted to be held accountable for them. This podcast was made possible by the generous support of the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard University and the John B. Moore Documentary Studies Collaborative at Stidmore College. A special thanks to Adam Tinkle, Jesse O'Connell, Alexandra Vacru, and Chris Martin.